0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, avoid, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
1: 18 plus.
2: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that opinions expressed in this podcast are opinions, not facts. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 9, Justice. The murder of a young mother. 27-year-old Nikki and her four-year-old daughter, Adrian, back in January of 1986, has never been solved. A reality that has haunted Adrian's father for over three decades.
3: The last picture that I have of her, it's Christmas, of her opening up her, her box and, and of, of, of Christmas gifts that I had got her. And and who would have thought that that would have been the last Christmas that I would ever had celebrate with my, my daughter?
2: That's Kenny Hale. I interviewed him back in early 2020, and I've never been able to forget his anguished, raw emotion. Essentially, the love of a father who's lost his little girl. And the way that he expresses it cuts deep. Because even though Kenny had every reason to be embittered, there's no self-pity in the way that he lays out his grief for Adrian and her mother, but the other shadows too just how close he came to becoming another victim. Because when it first happened, Kenny was considered the prime suspect in Nikki and Adrian's murders. Were you feeling at this time like, hey, they better not think I'm the suspect. This is my daughter.
3: I Actually, that- I didn't think that until the next day. That I didn't think that until that Friday, until my sister Mary said that you need to get an attorney. And I said, attorney, she said, Kenny, she says that they don't have no suspects, and they're they, they, they going to try to pin this on you. And I said, you got to be kidding me.
2: It's a miracle. So often, not afforded to innocent young Black men a rock-solid alibi, a competent attorney, and the grit of a sister who stood tall for Kenny at a time when he needed it most. We'll get into all those details, because over 35 years later, there is still hope that this case could be solved. That there could be some kind of justice for Nikki and Adrian, and maybe a measure of healing in the relationship between Kenny and the Bremerton Police Department. Because, according to Detective Marty Garland, the cold case investigators working the case today, quote, there's big stuff brewing. Kenny met Nikki in Indiana. That's where they're both from.
3: I come from a family of nine, six girls and three boys. And so my sister would always send pictures of Washington State. And the picture that actually got me was the fact that it was up at Mount Rainier in the summertime. And they were playing in the snow with tank tops and shorts on. And I say, where do you get these trick pictures at? I said, you don't have <laughs> snow and stuff in 60 and 80, 90, 80 degrees weather. She said, up here, you do. And so I said, I got to come out here and check that out. And so, uh, like I said, when I, I came here, I just fell in love with it.
2: In the early 1980s, Kenny moved to the Navy town of Bremerton, which is on the Kitsap Peninsula. At first, he lived with his sister. Then he got a job at the base, and he started planning for his future, which included a woman he'd fallen in love with back home in Indiana, Nikki. By the way, you will hear Nikki being referred to as Helene or Helena in the podcast. That was her legal name, but her friends and family called her by her nickname, Nikki.
3: When I got an apartment, I actually sent for Nikki to come out, and we resumed our relationship. And in the process, she got pregnant with Adrian.
2: After their baby girl, Adrian was born, Kenny says it was love at first sight.
3: I can remember the fact that her mannerism, that we would go to the store and how kids at an early age would Uh, you'd be in the checkout lane and how kids just get distracted and want to just you know play with things and all of a sudden as I'm in the checkout lanes and stuff all of a sudden you hear this little voice you know asking people say excuse me excuse me and people would look down at her at that age and just her mannerism and it just made me proud as as a dad on how blessed I was to just have her in my life.
2: And it sounds um, like she was smart, but was she sassy? Was she sweet? Was she uh you know, she could be all of those things
3: and more. Sassy, no. Uh she did have she did have a mind of her own that I remember the fact that when she was younger, there was times where she would she would get in a little trouble. And the thing about it was the fact that if she was to maybe get a little spanking, or if I was to just tap her and all of a sudden she'll tap me back. <laughs> And then I'll, then I'll tap her again and she'll tap me back. And I'm, I'm disciplining her. But the thing about it was it was almost like she was telling me that don't hit her anymore because she'll hit me back. And so at that time, I just grabbed her and gave her a big hug and say, daddy will never thank you again. Because of the fact that I was just her way of saying, I understand you scolded me and I understand that I'm wrong, but I don't need you to tap me like that no more, dad.
2: So it sounds like she was teaching you as much as you were teaching her. (laughs)
3: Teaching her, exactly.
2: There was a five-year age difference between Kenny and Nikki. And even though their love and care for each other was strong, he says they didn't always see eye to eye, and eventually they drifted apart.
3: Even though after we broke up, that our relationship still remained good. I mean, we still was, because she hung out with my sister Mary up here, and she hung out with other friends that we had, that we had became close with. It was just the fact that we had just came to a realization we needed to move away from each other.
2: The one very powerful thing that would forever bind them to each other was their love for Adrian. And that didn't change even when they started dating other people. They never lost sight of that.
3: The only thing I was concerned about was being the best dad I could possibly be. So after we broke up and we started uh, just uh, spending different times as far as uh, custody, as far as Adrian was concerned, Um, and Adrian was the the love of my life.
2: When Adrian was three years old, Nikki would go on to have a baby boy, Marcus, with her fiancé, Otha. Nikki's relationship with Otha didn't create any conflict because for Kenny, it was all about his daughter. And I imagine part of what made their relationship continue to thrive, even after their breakup, was respecting each other's privacy.
3: Before everything had happened, that's the only thing that I kind of regret, that I never really paid attention to people in her life because of the fact that at that time, it wasn't important, the people that was in her life, because of the fact that as long as it didn't interfere with our daughter and my daughter wasn't affected by it.
2: So I mentioned Detective Marty Garland at the top of the show. He wouldn't pick up the case until 2019. But he says back in January of 1986, for all intents and purposes, Nikki was a mom working as a cook at a nearby Arby's fast food restaurant, and she was just living her life.
1: Nikki was the, I guess, kind of quintessential struggling uh, single mother. She um, was doing the best that she could with what she had, She uh, had a small child, and then she also had a baby by another man that she was engaged to, but she had yet to join down in San Diego. So she was kind of piecing together life with, uh, you know, help of fast food job. Her kids were well taken care of. Her home was well kept. There's no indication that there was any kind of abuse or anything else going on in the home. You know, but she was also... A young lady, you know, so she had a circle of friends that would go out together and socialize and and hang out in the block that she was on, and you know that's why I said I mentioned earlier there's there's quite a few people in this case that have been interviewed and that we continue to interview because she did have a social group in her. She lived on a cul-de-sac, and you know, and the ladies in her neighborhood would get together and and socialize and hang out together, and their kids would play together. So. For a lot of people, she would be the girl next door. She would be just that regular mom that lives on your block with her kids playing out front and that you wave at every time you go by and, you know, to come over and borrow a cup of sugar when she needed it or loan it to you if you needed it.
2: Nikki was an excellent mother to her two children, four-year-old Adrian and little Marcus, her six-month-old boy. She was engaged to Otha, who was stationed in San Diego. Life was good. And there were some really exciting new changes happening in Nikki's life. That last week of January 1986 was a hectic and joyful time because she was preparing for a new chapter in her life. The following week, she was moving out to California to be with the father of Marcus, her fiancé, Otha. Even with an imminent move coming up the night of January 29th, it was pretty much like any other Wednesday night. After work, Kenny came over to visit Adrian, as he often did.
3: Nikki had... Pretty much just got off work, I guess, maybe an hour or two before because she was still dressed in her workout uniform. And I was talking to Adrian and asking her how her day was. We talked a little bit more. I knew that uh, it was kind of like I mentioned earlier to the uh, detectives at the time that Nikki would uh, walk up to her her front window and she would look out through her drapes in general. And I said, you expecting anybody? And she said, no. And so we just resumed our conversation. And so it was getting a little late, about maybe 8.30, maybe 9 o'clock, somewhere around that, t- that time, and getting ready to leave. And I'll stop back by tomorrow, which would have been that Thursday. And the only remorse that I ever have is the fact that I remember my my daughter, Adrian had asked, could she come and spend the night with me that night? And occasionally, I would take her home with me and let her spend the night, but I just didn't like a lot of times because I had to get up to go to work. Uh early in the mornings that I didn't like waking her up that early to bring her back to her mom's. And so when I left the house, uh, Nikki's uh, duplex that night, that Wednesday night, as I got in my car, I remember just seeing my daughter, you know, look out the window and wave at me. And, you know, and I just say, uh, I have seen, I'll see you guys tomorrow.
2: The following morning, Thursday, Kenny, as usual, wakes up bright and early for his work. After his shift, he goes to play basketball. But he doesn't forget the promise that he's made to his little girl the night before.
3: And so after the game, uh, a couple of guys wanted to celebrate. We went over across the street to the Red Apple store, had a couple of beers. And I said, hey, I got to go. I said, "Um, I promised my daughter that I was coming by to visit her tonight. I picked up a couple of things at the store and drove over to Nikki's house. And I got out the car, walked up to the door and knocked on the door, didn't get an answer. And I seen a note on her door, the collection's the furniture place, telling her that she was delinquent in her payment and that she didn't uh, make enough arrangements for them. They was gonna repossess her furniture. And so I went and got an a ink pen or a pencil or whatever I had to write with, and I wrote on it, and saying, Nikki, I think you should call these individuals because they're serious about repossessing your furniture
2: the late notice from the furniture rental company on nikki's door is an important detail that we'll get to later but for now imagine kenny is standing at the door of nikki's duplex he's adhering that past due notice back on her front door with his little note written on it and he's about ready to walk away when he thought he heard something he wondered was it a faint sound was it coming from behind the door he couldn't place it maybe he was just hearing things he stood very still caulking his ear toward the closed door. A few seconds later, there it was, a little whale. Was it a baby crying?
3: So when I pushed the door open, it was pitch black in there. And uh, when I s- stepped in, I kind of stumbled. And when I reached down to see what I stumbled, it was my daughter. And I reached down and I grabbed and what was her, her leg and stuff. And it was just solid rock. I mean, just... It's hard. And so Marcus, I hear him crying and my eyesight, I didn't know what a light switch at the time was. And so all of a sudden I can just visually, she's trying to adjust in the dark. And so I hear Marcus crying in a playpen, which was right by the door. And what was blocking the door was like a little, his little walker that they had between the playpen and the door that kind of barricaded it. So I grabbed Marcus out of the playpen and I ran DuPlex next door and knocked on door. And I says that you need to call 911. I said something happened over here at Nikki's place. And so uh, Victor Davis, which was the neighbor of Nikki's also, his wife grabbed Marcus and him and myself went back over.
2: With the flip of a switch, Kenny's eyes absorbed the unimaginable. The light of his life, Adrian, her lifeless body, lying on the floor in her pajamas, in a pool of her mother's blood, Kenny did not know this at the time, but Nikki had received several blows to the back of the head.
3: i seen Adrian laying down there on her back and all of a sudden I started giving her mouth to mouth and I'm looking across and I see Helene laying about four feet away from four to five feet away from Adrian and I see her her gown that she had her nightgown on and it was pulled up uh, up to her, her, her breast area exposing half of her body in general. She had no underwear on. And so all of a sudden I'm studying doing CPR and CPR, and I'm saying to myself, you know, what happened? What happened? This can't be real. And so eventually I started hearing squad cars come in. Eventually they came in and they stopped me from giving CPR and everything as I'm trying to still blow air into my dog because I don't know how long it's been or anything. They walked me out of the house and they went and set me in the squad car.
2: Kenny sat. In a numb silence. Was this even real? He didn't want to believe what he'd seen with his own eyes. Felt with his own hands. More after a word from our sponsors.
1: Lucky Land
0: Casino asking
2: people what's the weirdest
0: place you've gotten lucky.
2: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to
1: say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really?
0: Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: According to Detective Garland, it was a brutal crime scene.
1: This is a scene that, was horrific. It was bloody. Both of these murders were very personal, uh, up close and tight.
2: Sitting in that squad car, Kenny wasn't thinking about the blood that was smeared on his lips. Remember, Adrian was lying in a pool of her mother's blood while performing mouth-to-mouth on his daughter. He wasn't thinking about the contact blood that was transferred into his mouth.
3: was questioning me more about things and asking me questions like, How come I got blood on my mouth and—
2: It wouldn't dawn on Kenny until later that he was the last person, other than the killer or killers, to see Nikki and Adrian alive the previous Wednesday night. And he was the person who found their bodies. Bremerton police asked Kenny if he'll come down to the station to answer some questions that night, which he did.
3: I remember the fact that when the detectives finally told me that, you know, I can leave and they would like to talk to me in a few more days. And I said, that's fine. I said, because I'm willing to help out as much as possible, I said, to try to. You know, get this, get the perpetrators this as fast as we could, you know, before they get farther away, as far as evidence is concerned.
2: Were you feeling at this time like, hey, they better not think I'm the suspect. This is my daughter. I mean, actually,
3: that- I didn't think that until the next day. That I didn't think that until that Friday, until my sister Mary said that you need to hire, you need to get an attorney, and I said attorney. She said Kenny. She says that they don't have no suspects, and they. They're they going to try to pin this on you. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And they said, you need to get an attorney. So my sister actually had me uh, get a retainer for an attorney, which was John Brody at the time. And I remember the detectives asked me, can I take a polygraph test? And I told him I don't have a problem taking a polygraph test. And so they asked me, can I come down on a Monday morning to do a polygraph? And so uh, when I talked to the uh, attorney, John Brody, that I had got on a retainer, he says that. You tell them that, no, you will not take a polygraph test this this fast, that, you know, you will take one in a week or two. But right now, your emotions, and this goes by stress, and your emotions right now is is not good right now.
2: This never-ending gut punch of grief, Kenny's new reality, wouldn't stop him from wanting to do anything and everything he could to help investigators find the person responsible for murdering Adrian and Nikki. That's what he was focused on not the fact that Nicky was moving to California with his daughter, how that would look, that he would be the jealous ex. In spite of the good advice of his attorney, Kenny went back that Monday morning.
3: Started off like they really cared, and they really wanted to try to help me and help them, you know, try to give them some good leads in general. But as it turned out, everything started to shift. And I was there from like 9 o'clock to about, five o'clock, but I hadn't eaten anything, drinking anything. And so around four o'clock, 4.30, my sister came down and said, I, I need to see my brother. And they says, uh, your sister's out here and she want to talk to you. And they say, well, why don't you write on this note that I'm okay, love brother, love Kenny. And so I wrote it and they gave it to her. And she said, no, that's not good enough. I want to see my brother. You guys had him here all day and I need to see my brother. So she called the, uh, my attorney, John Brody, and so by that time, I was already in the process of getting ready to take the lie detector test. And they were saying the fact that if I if I stop in the middle of this test, then the show's sign of guilt. And then they switched the script and they started saying the fact that, why don't you look? And I said, I can look you straight in your face and tell you the fact that you guys concentrate so much on me that you letting the individuals get away. And the general, they says that, well, you did it out of rage. I say, how can you say I did it out of rage? I said, I love my daughter. And I said, you know, I, I, I care for her mom. I said, she was moving to San Diego. I said, I may not been able to see my daughter every day like I normally do, but if I miss my daughter, I didn't have a problem with catching a flight to San Diego to go visit my daughter. I said, so the rage that you're talking about because she was moving away from Washington state to another state, that didn't have anything to do with it. I said, me and her fiance was on good good terms and in good relationship, so there was no rage. So as I started taking this polygraph test, then there was a knock on the door and it was my attorney. And so he says, "Uh, I need to see you. He said, what are you doing? He said, what you're doing is a smart thing, but what you're doing is a stupid thing. He said, I can look at you right now and see that your brain and your mind is not here, that you've been here all day and you don't have to resume this. And so I turned to the detectives and I say, tell him him what y'all told me. And they say, you tell him, he's your attorney. And all of a sudden they just, Went to like, they didn't even know who I was. My attorney just told him basically, hey, from this day forward, you guys got anything to say to Mr. Hill, You direct it to me. Do not contact him. Do not talk to him. You talk directly to me. And the end of conversation.
2: Kenny credits his sister for having his back when he didn't even know it was up against the wall. Man, you got a good sister.
3: (laughs) Yeah, because the, the fact that after that, like I say, it was like, Ten years, and I, I didn't hear anything from the Bremerton Police Department. Nothing about the investigation. Nothing. Do you?
2: But do you ever spend time thinking about if you would have taken that polygraph test? And based on everything—the fact, lack of sleep, not eating, not drinking water, upset—you would have, you know, probably failed it. And yeah,
3: I, yeah, yeah.
2: As Kenny just said, after he walked out of the station, he pretty much didn't hear anything from the Bremerton Police Department for the next 10 years. Over those years, of course, Kenny lamented. If Adrian and Nikki had been white and affluent, would their murders have gotten more attention from the media? In cases like these, the bright hot spotlight of the media can help keep the cases alive with investigators' but also a source of information to spread the word on the case, and hopefully sources would come forward with tips. When I first reported on this case three years ago, I could only find a few local articles related to the investigation, mostly from the Kidsap Sun. And nationally, the headlines were filled with wall-to-wall disaster coverage of the space shuttle Challenger, which exploded in midair live on television. So this tragedy happened just two days before Nikki and Adrian were murdered. Which is all to say, it wasn't long before their murder cases went cold. But throughout the years, Bremerton investigators really never gave up on the case. Because the murders of a small child and her mother in 1986 stunned and deeply troubled the community.
1: It's not something that we see. You hear about it, I guess, maybe more in the news now uh, because of the internet and things like that. And we kind of see those things when they happen across the nation. But, you know, as far as happening in... Washington State or in the Puget Sound or in Bremerton itself. You know, I I have one other cold case that's open right now that involves a child murder. But that's that's it. There's it just does not happen very often.
2: According to a report in the Kitsap Sun in 2010, the murders of Nikki and Adrian were pursued in 1986 until they ran out of leads to run down. Over the years, the case has been reopened multiple times by new detectives in 1993, 2003, 2006, and 2009. In fact, one of the detectives who tirelessly worked the case before Detective Marty Garland would take over the case in 2019 had left a note in their murder book. Detective John Neal wrote, quote, "'17 years ago, a mother and her daughter lost their lives by violent means.'" never afforded the chance to live their lives to the fullest. Not only do I need your help in solving this crime, but Helene and Adrian do as well. Kenny says it was Detective Neal who was the first detective to reach out to him in a long time and shared some information with him about the case. Kenny says that with these police reports in hand that were given to him by an investigator, he lasered in on two people. Pam, who lived next door to Nikki in the other half of the duplex and a man named Antoine.
3: I still got the copy of everything and stuff that it, the interviews that they had of neighbors and stuff what neighbors seen the day before and everything else and I'm following along with this report and it talked about Antoine and talked about Pam was saying that Antoine was supposedly be a sometime boyfriend of Nikki and that part I told the detectives at the time that that's all news to me. I said that because of the fact that Antoine at the time was dating my younger sister, Carolyn Hale. So as far as the relationship that Antoine might have had with Nikki, I didn't didn't buy it. I said, I know that Nikki would give her shirt to anybody. She was just that carefree type of person that she would open her door to anybody that she knew. She just had that big of a heart. And sometimes I think that people wind up probably just taking advantage of her kindness and her, her friendship in general. And I think that's what might have happened that particular situation.
2: So for us to unpack some of these theories, let's take a minute to walk through the crime scene as Detective Marty Garland did after he got the case in twenty nineteen.
1: We estimate that the bodies had probably been the had probably been in the residence for between eighteen and thirty hours.
2: The crime scene suggests that Adrian woke up to the terrifying sounds of her mother being viciously attacked in the living room. There's evidence that Adrian came out of bed and into the living room carrying her blanket as if for comfort to see what was happening. And when she did, it was so horrifying, it's believed that she tried to run for the door, that she'd almost made it. But her body had been found by the front door. Her comforter from her bed was right beside her. So it's believed that she was snatched before she could get outside by the cold-blooded killer.
1: The scene of the crime was the front room of the residence. Both of the deceased persons were found in the front room of the residence, and the baby was also found in the front room of the residence, but in a, uh, I I guess it's commonly known as kind of a pack-and-play playpen that was in the corner of the front room.
2: Just six months old, baby Marcus's cries would help determine the time of death.
1: There was reports that we've been able to discover of people that have heard that baby crying, uh, you know, over the interviewing, intervening hours between when the murders happened and, and when the bodies were discovered.
2: The time of death was between 1 and 3 a.m. that Thursday morning, which meant that the baby had been left unharmed, but by himself all those hours before Kenny arrived at the door evidence also suggests a sickening detail, that the killer potentially picked up baby Marcus and put him in that pack-and-play as if to keep him safe after he murdered his sister and mother.
1: Every indication that he witnessed, both murders of his sister and his mother. But of course, you know, being the age that he was, he could neither describe what he was seeing nor remember it and describe it years later. So we believe that uh, the murder of Adrian wasn't necessarily the intent of the person that committed this act but that adrian likely uh, walked in on the murder of her mother and was killed as a result
2: was nikki sexually assaulted
1: indications that there was a sexual attack we don't know we can't really go into whether or not that was completed or not but yeah we have reason to believe that there was a sexual element to what happened to her
2: Investigators found bruising on both sides of Nikki and Adrian's necks, which indicated strangulation. Nikki also had blunt force trauma to the head. Detective Garland says defensive wounds on her arms indicate that she fought like hell to save her kids. There was blood on the TV, the carpet, and couch cushions. Police would collect pillowcases, cigarette butts, and hairs. This is 1986, so DNA wouldn't become a component until later in the case, which we'll get to. But the one thing that was crystal clear to investigators then and now, the person capable of committing these murders was pure evil.
1: Both of these murders were very personal, up close and tight, you know, in order to literally strangle the life out of somebody. You've got to have evil in your heart and you've got to have intent and you've got to think it through. And there's lots of time when that person is dying that you have an opportunity to change your mind and let them live. And this person that did this, uh, not only did that to Helene, but also to um, Adrian, takes a special kind of evil in order for somebody to be able to do that to anybody, but especially a child.
2: Over the years, there have been several men who were on law enforcement's person of interest list. A man who was a neighbor and allegedly babysat Adrian. A man whose car had been seen in the area at the time of the homicides. Detective Garland breaks this down.
1: There was a man whose car was seen in the neighborhood in the days leading up to the crime. And he uh, contacted the neighbors. He was known to Adrian. He was um, at one time kind of related to uh, Helene by marriage. And he has not been eliminated as a suspect. He has been interviewed um, and we have collected his DNA, but he has not been eliminated as a suspect.
2: Another person of interest was a boyfriend of Adrian's aunt, Kenny's sister. His name was Antoine, and he allegedly hid in a bedroom when investigators came to his house looking to talk to him as a potential witness. Let's talk about, as much as you can, the the three other potential suspects. It sounds like a boyfriend of Adrian's aunt who hid in a bedroom when you guys, or when uh, uh, law enforcement went to talk with him.
1: I would say there's several persons that are strong persons of interest, one of which you've mentioned there, but there's also people in Adrian's life that we haven't eliminated as suspects that weren't as well known to her, that we've considered lately as suspects that weren't when the first case was first opened. So we've maybe uh, opened up our uh, field of vision a little bit and looked at some people that were not quite as well known to Adrian, or uh, not, sorry, not to Adrian, but to Helene uh, at the time of their murders, and so, We've kind of been exploring those options as well as, like you said, you know, some people that came to the surface pretty quickly as persons of interest that have not been eliminated as well.
2: Kenny says that he'd like to know the true nature of Nikki's relationship with Antoine. Kenny also wonders about Nikki's neighbor, Pam. If you'll recall, I mentioned her earlier. She lived in the other half of the duplex.
3: Because my whole scenario, the whole thing, like I told them, was the fact that Nikki and and, and um, Pam Gator was really good friends. And I just says, don't you just find it strange the fact that if this had happened that particular night that Pam did not ever go over to Nikki's house at all. And knowing that Marcus at six months that to see his mom and his sister laying on that floor in his playpen, that as far as him needing a diaper change or needing to, to eat or for food or milk or something, as far as the, to be, have attention. Don't you think that that child cried throughout that day and everything else and for her to ignore that 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 without going over, knock on the door and saying, Nikki here, is everything all right? I said, because she didn't want, she knew something had happened that night, but she didn't want to be the one to go over there. And then as far as the guy Antoine, that says that he went over to her apartment and knocked and asked, you know, when Nikki was there, you know, did you know where Nikki was at? And she says, no, she don't know where Nikki's at. And then for me to be able to find them and that door was unlocked, that it tells me that he didn't want to be the one that goes, go in there and find them to answer the, the reports from the detectives. Because that particular night, when I sat in the the, the, the precinct at the Bremerton Police Department, when they finally found uh, Antoine, as I was leaving the precinct, I remember the fact that when they was bringing him in and I, I was walking out and he never, and I told the detectives, I says that he never looked at me. He never acknowledged me. And the fact that he had his head straight up in the air the whole time we passed by each other. And I'm saying to myself, it was, the shoe was on the other foot. I would at least say, hey, Kenny, what's going on? What happened? I say, but he made it a direct point not to look at me and not to make any eye contact with me when we passed each other as I was leaving as they was bringing him in.
2: Which is odd because didn't you say that he was dating your younger sister? Yes. So you guys had, you know, you probably weren't besties, but you were, you know, acquaintances, right? Yeah. Okay, so earlier in the show, I asked you to remember a past due notice that Kenny had found on Nikki's door when he'd gone back to the duplex after his basketball game on Thursday night. If you'll recall, He went back to his car to get a pen to write a special note on the past due notice, telling Nikki to take care of this bill or they were going to take her furniture away. And that's when he heard Marcus's faint cry. Now, Kenny is going to explain in his mind why this is an extremely important detail.
3: The the furniture said that he went to one of the neighbors or whatever, and I think he used the phone to call the residents, but he got no answer.
2: Okay, what's, wait, let me just let me just get this straight because this seems like a huge detail. So the furniture guy goes over there at around 9 o'clock. And, of course, they, they don't want to just leave the notice on the door. Any bill collector actually wants to get in your face, right? So they would right. want to talk to Nikki. He goes there, knocks on the door. Nobody's answers, but he hears a crying baby. And there's a police report that says he walked over to... Pam's place, the duplex, and they're supposed to be, Pam and Nikki are supposed to be friends and tells right. her there's a crying baby and she doesn't go over there. Exactly. And that's in a police report?
3: Yes. Wow. Actually, at first I even thought about, you know, sending you the follow-up report on step-by-steps on all this, the details of them investigating neighbors and then neighbors saying that, you know, when they came home at such a time in the, the middle of the night, that they noticed that there was a light on in Nikki's house at one o'clock in the morning that wanted actually, it was Victor Davis. Uh, and then as far as the the furniture the furniture uh, company, it just says between the hours of 10 to 10.15, uh, Pam Gator, she says that a man from the National Furniture Rental had come to her door and asked if Anderson was at home or at work when he heard a baby crying inside Anderson residence of 403 Magnolia. She said that about 7 p.m., Antoine also came to her door asking where Anderson was, and he had a a black male with him. She said Antoine was sometime a boyfriend of Anderson.
2: Wow, it seems like there's a lot. Did Pam ever, did you, have you ever talked to Pam and said, hey, why didn't you do anything when you heard a baby crying?
3: No. And they asked Pam, well, did you hear anything? And her thing was that she had like an ear infection and the detectives kind of just left it at that. I just told them, I says, that it was a sunny day that Thursday, a nice day. I says, and it just to this day that I said, Pam is one of the keys. I say either Pam knew who these individual was and she was maybe intimidated. They come after her, if she say anything? And they was hoping that maybe as time went on, Marty then was saying that maybe she might feel enough that she can come forward and say something. But like I told him, I said, was well, shortly after that, that she moved uh, from Washington State to, to, to get out of the area. And the other thing was that the detectives at the time when they was trying to find Antoine, cause Antoine had eventually left the state. And then they says that we've been trying to trace him and then they found him, but he had changed his name from Antoine to some other name and I'll say don't you guys find any of this strange that who who would all of a sudden all of a sudden go down and get their name changed to something totally different
2: and what did they say
3: they didn't they just said they thought it was strange too and they they said did they
2: collect his DNA
3: they at first they said he didn't want to but then I think that one later on that one of the other detectives says that they They said they did do a DNA, but they didn't find anything there. I said, that doesn't mean that he wasn't there. Just because you didn't find his DNA on him, per se, doesn't mean that he wasn't there that night. I don't think it was just one person. I think that there was other individuals there that night when this happened.
2: I was able to speak with Pam Gator recently. Pam Gator says that she moved into the duplex next to Nikki around October of 1986, so not long before Nikki and Adrian were murdered. It sounds like Pam's mom worked in Bremerton for HUD, and so when the second half of that duplex was available, she encouraged Pam to move from California to Bremerton with her two babies so she could be closer to family. Pam explained that she had a lot on her plate when she moved into that duplex. Her new baby had been premature, and she had a toddler. On top of that, her marriage, with her husband, who was in the military, was on the rocks. He was still stationed in San Diego.
4: Just moved there, going through issues with my husband. It's cold, it's snowing, I'm not really trying to be outside. So I didn't get to know her like that. And then the one day that she came and knocked on my door and asked me or whatever, um, did I mind coming over? And I said, no, no problem. I went over, she asked me, could she borrow um, an outfit and a pair of shoes, but this was prior to that. And I said, sure, no problem. Well, I went and got it, and I had given it to her, and she said, yeah, that that's the one that she wanted to wear. So well, I think I bought a couple.
2: Pam says the night Nikki and Adrian were murdered was the very first time that she'd been over to Nikki's house.
4: It wasn't like um, we were friends and I knew her to let loan her my stuff. You know what I mean? But I felt like I really didn't need it. You know what I mean? I'm not going anywhere, and she lives right next door. I could ask her for it back, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I didn't, I, at the time, I didn't even think, I guess. I just loaned it to her.
2: And when Pam was there, they just enjoyed each other's company for a bit.
4: I never saw Kenny that evening while I was there. And then I thought she said she had to go to work tomorrow or whatever. So she was, you know, trying to feed the kids. She was cooking or whatever and heating up stuff or whatever and trying to feed the kids. And then I had already fed my kids before I came over there. And I went home. But everybody was in clothes.
2: What time did you leave there, do you think? Do you remember?
4: Like I told them at the time, I don't remember looking at a clock. All I know is it she had fed them her children and she was ready to go bathe them or do whatever she needed to do to get ready for the next day cuz she had to go to work okay whatever that consisted of i don't know
2: do you remember if she was still in her arby's uniform yes, and i she know was. okay she was okay cuz yeah. cuz kenny said that he came over when he came over there she was still wearing her arby's uniform so she, yeah, you must have left like right before or at some point before he got there
4: yeah i went home or whatever and changed my babies and Got them wiped down and put in the bed. And I also had an ear infection at the time. And I had tried to tell them that, you know, like, sometimes I wouldn't hear the baby because I was laying on that side or whatever that I could hear out of, and the other side was blocked or whatever. I was like, so I don't know why I didn't hear the baby crying next door. It was the middle of the night, but I didn't hear anything.
2: Pam says she didn't know Antoine or even Kenny.
4: I never seen any guys or whatever over there. In the time that I lived there.
2: So it sounds like this was a random night by chance. You just happened to be over there and she just happened to borrow something. And then, you know, this whole thing happened. And the way that you've been questioned, it makes me feel like you, you a little bit, you're not defensive, but you're just kind of like, I don't know anything.
4: Right. I mean, if you just move into a a development, you know what I mean? You moving from out of state or whatever, you're going through your own problems or whatever, you move there and you don't want to make friends with everybody around you, you know what I mean? That wasn't my plan was to go there and make friends with everybody, you know what I mean? There's one person that lived next door and she worked. I didn't, she didn't go out of her way, I didn't go out of my way, you know what I mean? We were just neighbors.
2: Incredibly, according to Pam, police asked her to identify the bodies.
4: So I went over and I identified them. I told them who they were. Didn't know their last names, but I knew their first names and that there was a baby and I didn't know where the baby was either. But I'd and I go back to my apartment? And then I called my mom and told my mom whatever that Helena and her daughter was dead. And she said, well, I'm going to take your father right over. So my dad came and picked me up. And I got some stuff together and I left. I was like, what in the world? Yeah. I was like, what, what, is, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> my life went from bad to worse.
2: Pam says that after the murders, she was terrified because she had no idea why anyone would want to murder Nikki and her daughter, Adrian. She feared the worst that maybe this person would come back and do the same to her.
4: Beginning of April, I was in San Diego in housing.
2: So you stayed there a few months after it happened.
4: I was there, but I was trying to get myself together so I could go home or so I could go back to San Diego. I was like, I'm scared to death to live here. I don't know who did it. They don't know who did it.
2: Staying with her parents after the murders, she did have to return home. And she says that when she got there, there was something weird on her doorstep.
4: After a couple days of staying with my family, I needed to go back to the house and get more stuff for the boys. And when I did, there was a, um, like a lunch bag, brown paper bag you make your lunch in, full of weed.
2: Where was the weed?
4: Right in front of my door.
2: Like a bag of it?
4: A whole bag. I was like, who left this here? And why leave it in front of my door? Because you think I saw something, so you want me to shut
2: up? To this day, Pam says she doesn't know who put that weed on her doorstep or if it had anything to do with the investigation. Over the years, Pam has never forgotten Nikki or Adrian.
4: They pushed the door open a little bit, and the last thing I can remember is looking down and seeing a picture of Adrian, and seeing uh, my my eyes taking a photo shot of Helena Nikki. I didn't know her as Nikki; I knew her as Helena. That's how she introduced herself to me.
2: And were you and just, whole, what were you thinking? Were you just like, what?
4: Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, whoa, what, why? You know what I mean? How? When? Like, all that.
2: I mean, over and, the years, you must have thought this could have been me. I mean, you guys were very similar. You both had two children, same ages, living by yourselves.
4: And that was the problem. It was like, I can't live here. You know what I mean? Knowing that I've seen that next door, I can't live here. That bothered me that somebody could come there, do that, get away with it. Who's to say they're not going to come back thinking that I seen something and I didn't see anything? So it, they don't have to worry about it because I didn't see anything.
2: Pam explained that the police not only called to interview her over the years, but that they also came down to San Diego to interview her in person and that she wishes she knew more.
4: So if I did see something or did hear something, I would have said something. I would have helped out. You know what I mean? I just felt bad that I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. I didn't know that this was going to happen or else I would have probably asked different questions when I was at her house. You know what I mean? But I didn't know this was going to happen.
2: And we also talked about how close Kenny came to being another victim in this story.
4: She was excited to move to leave to go to san diego that was the last thing i saw and then i saw that and that just baffles me how one minute you're here and you're happy and you're looking forward to moving you're starting a new journey in life and then it's over yeah it's just just weird
2: Talking with Kenny, I mean the what this what he, I know you haven't met him, but it's it, like what he's been through and and how they thought he was the prime suspect at first and uh you know, thankfully, you know he had a good attorney, he had a rock solid alibi, and he had a sister who really showed up for him because they were about ready to hook him up to a lie detector test, and you know they thought he did it, and he's like. The best dad ever, you know, I mean, anyway, it's just, it could have, he could have been another victim of this. And um, a lot of times it doesn't go that way. He would have been put away for this, you know, he could have been an innocent man, but you know what I mean?
4: Yeah, well, I have two sons that went to prison for crimes they didn't do either. One 13 years and one's in there 19 years and he got life as a juvenile. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know you do. Yes, ma'am. I've been through it. And yes, Kenny could have been a victim of it. And like I said, I'm sorry, Kenny, if I ever did talk to you, I do not remember, recall, knowing that you were Kenny or that you were somebody else. I I don't recall talking to any men while I was there. Not even the postman, never even seen him.
2: (laughs) More murder chronicles after the break. Let's turn our attention to the DNA in this case. Over the years, the Bremerton Police Department has been extremely tight-lipped about the source of the DNA, which they believe could belong to the killer or someone who was there during the attack. In 2009, the Bremerton Police Department received a grant for further DNA testing on a blood droplet that was found on Adrian's nightgown. According to a report in the Kitsap Sun, that blood didn't belong to Adrian or Nikki.
1: cause of death was strangulation in both cases. There was blood at the scene, um, and that was, at least some of that blood came from Helene. Um, She had uh, a wound to her head that bled on the scene there. So um, some of that blood may have also come from somebody else, but it was a significant amount uh, from a head wound. Anybody that's had a head wound knows that it, it bleeds pretty significantly. And, and so there was a significant amount of blood on the couch and on some of the walls and on the carpet of the residence.
2: So what's interesting about this, and again, armchair quarterbacking from something I read mm-hmm. <laughs> in a newspaper article, is that there was one blood droplet on Adrian's nightgown. And she, it sounds like the, she didn't bleed at all. It sounds like that was a source of like, okay, maybe we can find who did this from that blood droplet.
1: Um, yeah, we've done a lot of work on DNA. Um, you know, back in uh, 85 or 86 when this case was first started, of course, DNA wasn't really even a thing. Um, but we've had that the evidence preserved in a way that we've been able to do a lot of uh, work up on the DNA. And we actually have a DNA profile from the scene that's unidentified. We don't know for sure that that's, our doer in this case, but it's definitely something that we're looking and working actively to identify who that person is that left their DNA at the scene.
2: It's a good profile, you know, like, you know how sometimes... It's a
1: good profile, yes. uh, We actually have um, a DNA profile that was run in CODIS, um, both at the state level and at the national level, and we have no matches.
2: And if you'll recall, Detective Marty Garland said that there was evidence that sexual assault was a component of the murder. But he also said the assault wasn't completed. Reading between the lines, it sounds like the fact that the sexual assault wasn't completed means they didn't find semen at the crime scene. Which is why the blood droplet found on Adrian's nightgown is key. Since there is an Imagine CODIS, which is the criminal DNA database from convicted offenders and crime scenes across the United States. So whenever they have a suspect in their sights, they have to get a surreptitious sample. You know, the whole follow the unwitting suspect around until he discards gum or a cigarette butt, which they then collect to obtain a sample of his DNA, which they then compare to the sample that they have.
1: One of the people that we've been most interested in lately uh, is a person that still lived here locally, and uh, we were able to go do a trash collection on some discarded uh, garbage from him, from a common source, and and uh, we were able to get DNA from that, and that DNA also did not match. So um, that person's yet to be interviewed or uh, contacted about this case, and they're still a person of interest. And we believe that they may have knowledge about this case, but you know, again, it's another one where, yeah, I, I spent a weekend waiting and watching him, and uh, and was able to collect that, that DNA uh, from some discarded food packaging, and uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't a match.
2: After Detective Garland took over the case in 2019, a lead surfaced that seemed, although almost unbelievable, could have legs. Were Nikki and Adrian murdered by the serial killer, Henry Lewis Wallace?
1: The Taco Bell murders, um, just for clarification's sake, the person that was uh, convicted in those cases, uh, they were back in North Carolina. Uh, His name is Henry Lewis Wallace, and he was convicted in 1997. Of the murders of i think he was convicted of nine but he's suspected of committing more than that
2: wallace murdered 11 black women in south and north carolina from march 1990 to march 1994. wallace is currently on death row there were several circumstantial connections between the murders of nikki and adrian and the way that the serial killer henry lewis wallace operated for example in one of the murders wallace raped strangled and stabbed his victim in front of her infant son, but didn't kill her baby. In another case, he murdered a woman while she was holding her baby and then strangled the child, thinking that the baby was dead, but the child would survive. And unbelievably, Henry Louis Wallace had been in Bremerton around 1986. Everything seemed to be lining up.
1: Wallace's victims were petite black women aged 17 to 35. Most of them weighed under 125 pounds. Uh, they either came from a, a middle class or a working class background. Almost all of them worked in the fast food industry. And if you look at Helene, that's exactly a description of her. You know, she's uh, uh, right in that age group. She's under 125 pounds. She's a single black woman, she's very petite. He works at an RV. So we thought, wow, that really does look interesting. Now, why would we even look at somebody that's in North Carolina killing people in the early 90s or late 80s and link it back to Bremerton? Well, the interesting thing about Wallace is he was in the Navy and uh, he was actually assigned to the USS Nimitz and the Nimitz was homeported in Bremerton uh, at the time of these murders. And so we took a hard look at it and uh, I actually um, was able to obtain Wallace's military records and uh, we were able to track where he was at and what he was doing throughout his military career. He, he uh, you know, joined the US Navy in December of 1984. He was a recruit in, in Orlando until February of 1985. He, he went uh, to his, his A school in 1985 and eventually was assigned to the USS LaSalle in 1985. USS LaSalle was in the Persian Gulf and uh, he actually remained on that boat until May of 1986, which was four months after uh, the murders in Bremerton. In June of 86, he was transferred to the USS Nimitz and homeported in Bremerton. So he actually arrived here a full four months after the murders had been committed here. We're able to verify through medical records that he was seen on the LaSalle in December of 85 and also in February of 86. So on both sides of uh, the murders here, he was actually seen by medical professionals on the LaSalle in the Persian Gulf. So there's no doubt in our mind that he's not linked. It is very interesting and uh, and ironic, I guess, that you know he is here in Bremerton and stopped by the police and has contacts and Um, you know, had a warrant for his arrest out of Bremerton at the time that he was contacted uh, in North Carolina for the murders down there. But the timelines just don't match up.
2: And just, you know, super, you know, crossing T's, dotting I's. Did you check his DNA through CODIS and it wasn't a match? Absolutely. Even though Henry Lewis Wallace could not be the killer in Adrian and Nikki's murders. It's interesting to think about what the person looks like who is capable of committing these types of crimes.
1: I think there's two victim, two of his victims that he had a pretty intimate relationship with. And then one victim I think he didn't know at all. But all the rest of them definitely fell into this kind of, you know, workmate uh, kind of relationship. You know, somebody you see at work and you say hi and they say hi back and you do your thing and they do their thing uh it wasn't you know like buddies so i I think that's fair to say. Most of his victims fell into that category.
2: Which is tough because it's so great that you guys have DNA because this is potentially could be the type of killer where it's like nobody saw it coming. There's no reason to suspect this person. I mean, if they just can act normal quote unquote during, if if they're interviewed for whatever reason, you know, you might just dismiss it as like, oh, he has no motive. He's got a clean record. He's not acting weird. There's nothing in his history to point the finger at any kind of violence because I mean, two murders, a child, you're going to have kind of an impression of who you think could be capable of doing that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting that you say that because, yeah, if they act normal during their interview or it's very possible, even this many years later, that they've never been interviewed, that they were enough of, you know, second or third degree relationship to our victims that they never even hit the radar of the original detectives or any detectives since then.
2: Detective Garland believes in his heart that this case is absolutely solvable.
1: Every detective that has worked on this case that I've talked to, and I've talked to all of them, have agreed that the case is solvable. It's just a matter of of finding that kind of needle in a haystack. And that's, you know, why we go through cold cases and we re-examine things and we apply new technology and we kind of take a look at it from a different perspective and and try to, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of widen our field of vision. This, this case has, has DNA in it. It's got lots of people who uh, knew Helene, lots of people who uh, were in the area at the time that the murders were committed. We've got a really good timeline. We know, uh, you know, who was in her life at the time. We've got great clues as far as who was kind of uh, in her social circles. And those people have been contacted, and amazingly, you know, here it is, what, 30, almost 35 years later, and a lot of those people are still alive, and I've been able to interview them, you know, we've traveled to uh, Indiana and Mississippi and Florida and uh, Chicago, you know, to, to do interviews and to collect DNA and to follow up on this case. So. It, it is something that we consider to be solvable. It's just a matter of whether or not, um, you know, we can. Like again, I said, uh, you know, can we find that needle in the haystack?
2: In fact, Detective Garland's passion to find justice for Adrian and Nikki caught Kenny's attention when he just so happened to be watching TV, and he saw Detective Garland talking about a cold case, which he doggedly pursued and solved. In this Como 4 news package, reporter Keith Eldridge spoke to Detective Garland.
3: The cold cases, still very
1: active. It doesn't mean that there isn't DNA that's gonna pop up and grab somebody. The message Detective Garland has for other cold case murderers. I think you should check your rear view mirror.
2: During that feature story, Kenny saw a picture of Nikki and Adrian flash on the TV screen, and for the first time, in a really long time, there was a flicker of hope that maybe there might be some justice for Nikki and Adrian.
3: He solved and went after these individuals of cold cases, and uh, when he was on the news, and then he happened to show Nikki and Adrian picture on the news channel. Just started talking about just to let you criminals know the fact that if you think that you you didn't got away with it, he says that you know, think again, he said, because I'm coming for you. And so that just made me feel a lot better. The fact that he's just not talking the talk, that he cares about the job that he's, that that he that he's doing and, and to try to just give some gratitude and relief to family members and stuff that has, you know, lost somebody due to a terrible situation.
2: Thanks to that random coincidence of Kenny watching TV at that particular moment when that news report flashed before his eyes. Kenny says it went a long way toward a healing, especially after how he was treated. And Marty believes that this case could be solved with genetic genealogy.
1: We don't have a profile that's complete enough to do a complete genetic genealogy workup. Now, that doesn't mean that we haven't had a workup done, because we have. And I can't share with you what the results of that are, but we did... Get some interesting information from that, and it's pointed us in some different directions than we were originally pointed. And so um, that is something that we've done, and that is some some information that we're working off of. Again, unfortunately, I can't go into that because uh, it's part of an active investigation.
2: And this is what I love about being a part of the true crime genre: connecting people to cases like the amazing Paul Holes.
0: This is Paul Holes, I'm a retired uh, cold case investigator out of the Contra Costa County DA's office.
2: If you're unfamiliar with Paul Holes, he and his team played a huge role in solving the Golden State Killer case, and that came about through a very specific form of genetic genealogy.
0: I was like, I wonder if that type of genealogy could be used to figure out who the Golden State Killer is. And, And ultimately, that proved to be successful.
2: I was able to talk with Paul, and he agreed to speak with Detective Garland about the DNA sample they have in this case.
0: Yeah, I can connect him with resources that could maximize that DNA. So um, you can, uh, you have my email, mm-hmm. hook us up, and I will get him in touch with the people who can at le- that will likely be able to solve that case.
2: And although Detective Garland has been super tight-lipped about the DNA sample that they have, he was really excited to talk to Paul Holes about the case.
1: Because he kind of talked to me as, and actually to my state DNA scientist, as kind of a console to, like, he had talked about some things that had worked well for him in the past and some, some avenues that he had pursued and some things like that. So we talked a little bit more about intricacies of the case and what we actually have and and looked at actual evidence items.
2: So here's the pitch for you to come forward, if you know anything, even if it seems like the tiniest fragment of information.
1: I believe in my heart that the person that's responsible for this is uh, somebody that would have probably talked to or confided in somebody else. I believe that there's Uh, people out there that know more than they've either come forward with because they didn't know who to come forward to or uh, you know at the time they were too close to the suspect or the crime and i'm interested in hearing any and all of those people Um, we again have a very wide uh, view of this case right now and we're looking at people that have never been looked at before and so if you could give me a call again sometimes it's that very tenuous thing that you heard or overheard somebody talking about one time when they had one too many drinks and you thought, wow, that's really weird. Sometimes that solves cases like this.
2: So at the top of the show, I said that there was some exciting new information. Recently, in an email exchange between Detective Garland and myself, he said this, quote, not a lot has changed since we last worked together. There is big stuff brewing. And then he adds, insert suspenseful music here but I still am not at a point where I can share anything. Sorry about that. I'm super hopeful that we will have some exciting news soon, but the timeline is out of my control at this point. Is that cryptic enough for you? Is that a good teaser? Marty, it sounds like there's some exciting news that could be coming down the pike soon. But in the meantime, if you have any information on the murders of Adrian Hale and Nikki Anderson, please contact Detective Marty Garland at 360-473-5488. And if you have a case you'd like us to cover on The Murder Chronicles, reach out to me at the Chronicles at cavalrymedia.com. And thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.